Welcome to another episode of Stroke FM. Today we're going to talk to you about our episode titled Drano. You will get why that is the case because it is all about opening pipes with chemicals in this case. I am joined by my great co-hosts. Uh, I'm Kat. You've heard me on some other ones, I think. I'm Neha. And I'm Pav. And we're all at University of Toronto Neurology. All right. Pav, why don't you start, start us off about talking about where did this whole thing come about? Right. Well, I mean, we've already kind of hinted at it, uh, Drano. Um, and in this case, we're talking about giving the juice or TPA. So TPA uh, is something that's been around uh, for a while now. It, it was actually created back in the 80s, and uh, it stands for Tissue Plasminogen Activator. Uh, and just to give some basics uh, to everyone out there, it uh, cleaves a molecule called plasminogen into plasmin, and that plasmin is what uh, breaks down blood clots. Right. And the molecule works on the surface area. So, for example, if you have a clot that's um, in a vessel and all it is is that the, the, the vessel is completely occluded, then the molecule can only talk to, if you will, or interact with the surface area that's exposed, meaning the stump of the clot in the vessel. And so it can't really do a great job. In, in other cases where the clot is not a complete blockage and blood is still flowing past a thrombus that's sitting inside a vessel, the TPA molecule can kind of interact with the entire surface of that clot and start to break down that clot. So that's an important point. And that's why TPA doesn't work great when there's a big occlusion in the neck or in a proximal vessel. And, uh, you know, I can't complete uh, a discussion on TPA without venting my frustration, which is that as uh, neurologists and stroke neurologists were sort of uh, always behind the game. Uh, so TPA may have been invented in the 80s, but uh, we only started using it in the late 90s while the cardiologist and uh, internists were using it for things like MI and uh, pulmonary embolism. Just to throw that out there. Nice. Yeah. And it's uh, just to bring a funny element into it. It's such an important, you know, substance and medication for us neurologists. I remember uh, Pav, you know what story I'm about to tell. Pav bought a cake for one of our barbecues once and it had a bunch of decorations on it. And so we drew uh, a brain from Pinky and the Brain pouring uh, TPA. So that's how important of a molecule it is to us. So I'm glad that we're having a whole podcast about it today. Yeah, I find it really crazy to think that even like in the 1990s, people were just having strokes and they wouldn't get TPA, no kind of acute treatment. And they're just living with weakness on one side of their body and bed bound basically for the rest of their lives. So it was uh, really great to finally have an acute treatment for stroke when we started using it in the 90s. Yeah, so we should really talk about who exactly are candidates for TPA. And uh, really the things that, uh, the two most important things are one, the patient has to uh, present within four and a half hours from last being normal, and they have to have significant enough symptoms to sort of outweigh uh, the risk of uh, TPA with bleeding and other associated side effects. That's right, yeah. So the sweet spot for TPA is from a disability perspective, an NIH stroke scale is around probably six to seven. Everybody will have a story out there where they have TPA, maybe an NIH of zero or a much lower NIH. And for example, that could be in situations where speech is significantly affected or a dominant hand or something like that. The NIH may be quite low, but those are kind of the caveats that go into it. What about timing? Does time matter? So I guess what we're traditionally taught is that someone has to present within 4.5 hours of symptom onset in order for us to give TPA. And if they're presenting over 4.5 hours from symptom onset, we typically don't give it. But I do understand that there can be exceptions to that. Right. Well, you know, uh, on label, uh, four, and a half, four and a half hours is what we're, we're stating. But 
uh, I like to consider myself a newer generation of uh, stroke neurologists. Not not that I'm calling uh, human old, uh, but uh, where we're not considering uh, time uh, as much anymore with uh, some of the newer evidence, right? So we have two new studies, uh, Extend and Wake Up, that use imaging-based criteria to make these decisions and not time. Uh, and so, you know, there are some issues with that. I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's a perfect science by any means, um, and it's certainly off-label TPA. Uh, but I think it's important to note that, you know, there are some exceptions and uh, things we can do to give people TPA outside those time windows. And I'm excited for the results of these studies, because as far as I'm aware, these are the first uh, TPA studies that will be using perfusion imaging, um, because prior um, studies like NINs and ECAS didn't. And the interesting thing is when we look at the EVT literature, the inclusion of the perfusion imaging really changed um, our use of EVT. So I'm hopeful that the same things will come. Uh, into play with TPA. That's right. And they, they use MRR generally. And, you know, it's the concept of diffusion weighted imaging with a mismatch with what's called flare imaging to kind of distinguish what's ischemic and what's actually infarct. But the challenge is it's hard to get acutely and many centers can't get acute MRIs. And the other challenge is in one of them, even the door to needle time was actually quite extensive. Like they had a door to needle time close to two hours. But anyway, so all to say that it's definitely possible, it sounds like outside of four and a half hours. And if you are much younger than I, then time doesn't matter as much. And it's all about <laughs> it's all about how the brain actually is. Um, on the other side of the coin, you know, you were talking about one side of the coin is time and doesn't matter. And on the other side of the coin, we we're talking about disability and that, you know, you have to have at least some sort of disabling stroke. And there's some exciting trials like Tempo 2 coming out, looking at patients who have actually maybe a minor stroke, but the potential for a significant stroke or a minor NIH, but actually that has something to do with like a that for some people would be considered uh, a minor or very disabling symptom. That's right. And the future may hold more good things for that other compound in that trial, which is tenecteplase. Uh, and uh, we're going to be part of, uh, at our site, you guys are all going to be part of uh, comparing uh, a TPA or alteplase uh, with tenecteplase in comparison to see which one has differences. They are kind of different in how you give them, I guess, too. Like one of them is an infusion, which is the TPA, which we'll talk about, but tenecteplase is more of a push. And Tempo 2 uh, looks at uh, NIH uh, 5 or less. And they're also using tenecteplase, as I understand. That's right. Yeah, again, standard of care. So it'll be very interesting to see. So I think it's been great now. We've kind of talked a little bit about the history of TPA, when it's used, Perhaps now would be a good time to also discuss the contraindications and cases in which we would not want to give TPA. Um, so according to the Canadian Stroke Association, the two major absolute contraindications, which logically we can kind of understand, is that if there's any hemorrhage in the brain, we obviously would not want to give TPA, um, or if there's any kind of active bleeding in the body. Those are the major ones. And then the other ones are pretty easy to kind of remember. Um, obviously, if someone has very elevated INR or PTT or low platelets, or if they've taken anticoagulation, um, those would kind of be th reasons we'd have to think about maybe not giving TPA as well. And I think it's important that you highlighted that those are relative because one of the things I've learned this year as I transitioned to senior residency is I used to kind of obsessively wait for the INR to come back. And this year I'm learning that, you know, if you don't have a good reason for the INR being increased uh, and you can you can comfortably treat that as a relative ex exclusion criteria because it's unlikely to be high if they're not on a, a warfarin, for example. Definitely. But I think Sometimes it can be 
difficult, I think, in the cases we get in knowing whether or not to give TPA. And for example, I have a case um, that I'm going to talk about now in which we kind of struggled, I think, as the stroke team to think about whether or not the decision was correct to give TPA. So the, the patient we had was a lady in her 70s, had a left MCA stroke, and TPA was actually given at the outside hospital before she came to us. And unfortunately, um, and she had had a lap coli, so laparoscopic cholecystectomy, uh, basically two days ago. And unfortunately, she had a GI bleed then by the time she came to us and was given the TPA. And so that was obviously an undesired outcome that occurred with this patient. And I know as the stroke team afterwards, we talked a little bit about how, you know, a lap coli is really a minor procedure. It's not really a major procedure, which if you look at the list of contraindications, it's really the major surgeries we talk about. But I think it just highlighted the importance of remembering that even with these minor procedures, sometimes patients can have serious complications. So I don't know if anyone else has any other thoughts on that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think this is the role of where, you know, the checklist can be helpful. You know, you have so many cognitive overloads during this scenario. It's nice to actually just zero in on those things and then consider, you know, is this surgery minor or major? And then you can always reach out to your surgical colleagues for assistance as well. And I think actually this highlights an important point, which is that the contraindication checklist we're using actually just came from the original trial, right? So the, the NINS-TPA trial used a set of uh, criteria, and then we've kind of adopted that as uh, the formal guidelines. Uh, but some of the criticism of that is that, you know, some of these things are arbitrary, and these checklists also don't account for some of the things that we see, right? So, for example, um, you know, I think we've all been uh, involved in cases where a patient has come in as a code trauma, and, uh, you know, but is also subsequently found to have a stroke, and this isn't really highlighted in the trial, and yet we kind of have to use our uh, logic and sort of best available evidence to try to make a decision around TPA in those cases. But I guess I did just want to pose it to the group. Would you be comfortable giving TPA to someone who had a lap coldly two to three days ago? I think um, I probably wouldn't just because um, even if the operator thought, um, so I mean, it's kind of a bigger question, like, if if there was some form of surgery, in this case, it was general surgical, they could have been any other procedure. Sometimes, uh, and I can even in this case, there's a discussion to the surgeon say, you know, how, how, how good, how comfortable are you with, you know, the surgical bed was, was perfectly controlled and you don't expect to be a bleeding risk. And that was the discussion that was had. It's just that it's hard to know what that individual's response is going to be then with this type of um, agent. And, and really fundamentally, what we're talking about is that Bleeding on its own is not an anti, like an absolute contraindication because it matters where the bleeding is. But the problem is like intra-abdominal bleeding, if it were to be severe, is not really a compressible site. So sites that are compressible and could be treated uh, with, for example, a pressure and things like that, th- that is where, you know, like, like minor trauma, for example, would be, a, would be a relative contraindication. But in this case, I think, uh, again, a discussion could be had and and it was done. There was actually another case uh, that was directly at our center that was, that was a different type of surgery uh, where, again, the results were quite good with TPA and the person did not bleed. So, I mean, I guess the, the, the final arbiter is the patient substitute decision maker and an informed consent, which, again, you know, all of us would say is not just the paperwork. It's that discussion of the risks, benefits, and alternatives. And in these sort of off-label cases, as long as you document that you, what you're doing is off-label, and that you have the consent of either the patient or the SDM for their benefit, then it's fair. 
Um, and, you know, uh, and even in this particular case, actually, the patient did not end up having massive hemorrhage intra-abdominally. The problem ended up being something else. And they, in fact, had other perioperative complications that had nothing to do with the TPA being given in a perioperative setting. So I think you're all like making excellent points in that these trials were designed initially with TPA with a plain CT, no advanced imaging, and a very strict criteria. And now in the year 2020, we have a lot more information. And so we can and nuance the care a lot more. And on the topic of uh, new information, I think, Neha, what would have been helpful for me to make that decision is to know whether they are a candidate for endovascular therapy, because I think the relationship between TPA, TPA and EVT is evolving, and having that extra information about the vasculature may help you. Ultimately, I'm sure we've both been in scenarios where someone had a very large clot and a very amenable uh, situation to endovascular therapy, um, and you kind of forego the risk of bleeding. So so that you can go right for the mechanical thrombectomy target. Whereas also, but there's been other situations where someone has a very uh, poor-looking stroke syndrome. They're not with a uh, within candidacy for mechanical thrombectomy. And in that case, you say, well, there's nothing else we can do. Will you accept the risk of bleeding in the event of doing nothing? Uh, and so there's some interesting new trials coming about this, the SWIFT direct trial, which will actually pick a certain group of uh, candidates and randomize them to TPA and EVT versus EVT alone. And I'm excited to see what those show. So from here, you know, we're, we're at the scanner, we've identified that someone can have be a candidate for EVT, uh, or not EVT, sorry, TPA, pardon me. Uh, my question is, uh, do you guys like to wait for the vasculature before you give it? Or do you give in between uh, the plain CT scan and the and the vascular imaging? Well, I think practices uh, will definitely vary between clinicians. But um, in, in my opinion, I think if you see a patient, uh, you know, walk through the door and it's a, a, a clear left MCA syndrome, high NIH, um, and you're very sure that this is going to be a proximal occlusion, um, I think all you need really is the plain CT uh, to make sure that uh, one, they don't have a huge territory infarction. And the other thing is obviously to rule out a bleed. Um, and I'm also a strong proponent that we should all learn how to mix TPA uh, and not have to uh, rely on the nurse or, or others, because I think that can definitely speed up time. Um, and to everyone who's listening, mixing TPA is very easy. Uh, you just open the box. There's literally two bottles, one with a powder and one with uh, the fluid. Uh, there's a little plastic piece that uh, fits both bottles. Put the powder on the bottom, put the bottle with the fluid on top, and, and you just mix away. The only important thing is that you don't shake vigorously and you just swirl until it's fully dissolved. And, and there you go, there's your TPA. And once you've calculated the bolus dose and the infusion doses, uh, my uh, tip that I've learned over the years is actually push the bolus yourself. Some centers will set it up onto the infusion pump, and that's just extra time. But that remembering when you push that TPA, you have to um, follow with some saline because otherwise that TPA is just sitting there. Right. And the other important point, obviously, is um, before you push, make sure you look at their vitals. Um, so the... Uh, initial uh, NINS-TPA trial was uh, a little bit uh, tricky with their blood pressure parameters, but essentially when it comes to the bolus, just make sure the blood pressure is less than 185 over 110. Uh, and if you're there, then you're you're good to go. You're all clear. That's fantastic. We get to practice our barista skills, uh, what we always want to do. Um, so maybe a quick word about optimizing door-to-needle time, and everybody should chime in. Door-to-needle time matters a lot because the guideline is actually to give TPA within 30 minutes, it would be even much better given within 15 minutes of arrival. Uh, and so this is the so-called door-to-needle time. And some of the things that have worked at our shop have been 
some optimizations around the team dynamics and things like that, which starts right off from the beginning, getting some pre-notification about the patient and ideally some health information, personal health information, meaning that we could pre-register the patient. So when they come, it's very quick. Orders can go in, blood work labels, all that stuff. Taking a patient directly from the EMS stretcher with the EMS to the scanner is ideal. And the reason for that is it trims all the excess. Things like putting a gown on the patient, doing an ECG, you know, repeating blood pressure if there's already one with EMS, those are all not necessary. Definitely monitoring in the scanner is important because we want to see what the oxygen saturation is and the blood pressure. Those are probably the two key things just to make sure the patient's okay and also to be able to push the TPA, PAV, as you said. But repeating uh, monitoring and so on can add. The last thing is to give the mixing of this uh, mixing of the juice in the scanner and to give it in the scanner uh, before the infusion is set up and then get that infusion set up as the patient's coming off the table and back into the emergency department. Any other uh, tips and tricks from you guys? Yeah, so I would say um, that uh, it's always important to ask uh, a nurse who, is, who isn't accompanying you to start setting up the uh, pump uh, just because uh, you don't want too much of a delay between that uh, bolus and the infusion. It kind of actually defeats the purpose, right? I mean, the, the half-life of TPA is so little that you want to have that steady uh, infusion. And so just make sure you have the, the setup ready to go as soon as the patient's out of the scanner that they get the infusion. And I think, you know, at our centers where we work, we have a very protocolized uh, stroke, code stroke. And I think that's really key to all of this. Um, if anyone listening is in a position where you can be a leader and set up a stroke protocol, you know, having pre-ordered blood work, pre-ordered CT scan, all of these things set up and protocolized makes a big difference because everyone is just focusing on the task at hand, which is um, getting the patient to the scanner, examining the patient, and then getting them any treatments such as TPA and EBT. And so I guess the final piece we can maybe talk about before wrapping this up is just the care that we would then provide after giving TPA. Uh, so the main thing is really to do a CT scan uh, about 24 hours after giving the TPA to see if there's any hemorrhagic transformation on that. Yeah, that's a good point, Neha. And Really, in between those first 24 hours, it's key that the patient is in a, a monitored setting um, because uh, we don't obviously want to wait 24 hours to find out that uh, the patient has bled. And so those uh, neural checks um, every hour uh, is important to, to see if there's any deterioration and, and getting that uh, CT scan stat before the 24 hours if needed. And then remembering that the patients with these posterior circulation strokes or, you know, late window strokes may be at a higher risk of uh, malignant edema. And just to be having, making sure in your hand over, you, you let your uh, overnight resident know about those potentially at-risk patients. I think that was a fantastic summary, guys. Thank you so much for all your uh, excellent uh, tips and pro tips, I would say. That's fantastic. Any final comments before we sign off? Uh, yes, actually one final comment. So, you know, TPA can sometimes get some bad press, but at the end of the day, it saves lives. And, uh, you know, recently, it's hard to think about anything other than the current ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And TPA may soon have a, another indication. And there are actually some centers who are now using TPA in ARDS patients with COVID-19 to treat microvascular thrombosis. So uh, for everyone who's listening out there, check, that, check those uh, papers out. 
COVID what? Sorry, what are you talking about? Is there something going on that I don't know about? Whoa, Human, are you living under a rock? What's going on? (laughs) So on that note, I'd like everyone to know that we are all advocates of staying home. We've recorded this podcast using awesome online technology um, and trying to also stay physically distant, but still socially together. And tonight we've, or tonight we've brought, uh, TPA has brought us together. So we can be thankful to TPA for that. Thanks so much for listening to us, guys. This is Stroke and 